I'm from Connecticut, which is a state in the United States. And I am going to primarily be doing a PowerPoint presentation, which is available on the schedule. I also um, have some worksheets, which if you didn't print them, it's fine. Blank paper will do. But if you don't already have something to write with and a bunch of paper, then this is a good time to go and get it. Um, I've asked the IT crew to disable the chat while I'm doing the presentation because I will find it very distracting. Um, but I am leaving time for questions at the end. And I just want you to know that I may not have all the answers. I have the answers about my boundaries, but I might not have the answers about your boundaries. So what I intend to do here today <clears throat> is to help you understand how I think about boundaries. And that doesn't mean these are the only ways to think about boundaries or they're correct for you. That's just what I've learned and discerned and are helpful to me. I've also created some visual depictions. I am a visual learner, as I know many people are. So hopefully my visuals will be helpful to you. But remember that there are symbols and symbols are not always perfect representations of reality. So just, you know, bear with me on that. So um, that being said, I'm going to share my screen and go ahead with my PowerPoint presentation. Okay. Can you see that? Actually, let me go back one. Um, so my email address is right here. It will also be on the last page of the presentation. So if you forget to write it down here. Um, and in addition to that, this PowerPoint presentation is part of the handouts, which are on the schedule. All right, so just some housekeeping. I've gotten feedback from people who've been to this workshop before um, that it's helpful to have this guidance ahead of time. So in the schedule, there is one um, download, which is the worksheets. If you did not download them, it's okay. They're not really sophisticated and you can use blank paper. Number two, it's a good idea to have a separate sheet of paper with questions for me and then something separate where you're going to take notes. Again, the PowerPoint presentation will be available to you. So if you're like me and taking notes distracts you, then maybe don't take notes and just use the PowerPoint presentation. And I will leave room for questions at the end. So to begin with, I know that this is virtual, but I am granting everybody who is participating here a boundary building official learner's permit. So this certifies whoever you are, adult child, that you are able to practice boundary building for as long as necessary without shame. And this is the official seal of the Boundary Builders Association, which by the way, I made up. So I just want you to know that you're granted the ability to practice and practice makes progress and no shame. All right, so what we're gonna be covering is a variety of things. So I'm gonna start with the two most important insights that I've had about boundaries. That way, if you, like, if I make you go to sleep, you've gotten something out of it. Then I'm gonna go over some frameworks 
for changing our behavior because that's what recovery is all about. And that's what learning to set boundaries are all about. Some of those frameworks are the ACA program of recovery and the ACA 12 steps. And then I'm going to share my personal experience, strength, and hope about boundaries, which basically this entire presentation is that, but there's a section that's very specific. Then I'm going to cover a bunch of principles of boundaries that I've learned in a variety of contexts, much of which has been from recovery. And then at the end, how to know where the boundary goes and how to set boundaries. So the two most important things that I have learned about boundaries, which I will be going into more detail about later in the presentation are one, I've learned to care more what I think of me than what other people think of me. So when people ask me, how was it that you were able to set boundaries? I realized that I started really caring more what I think of me than what other people do. Now, this doesn't mean I don't care what other people think of me. Of course I do. I'm a human being and I have compassion. But it used to be that I put you liking me above me having integrity and being an honest person. So I would say things like, oh, absolutely. I'm happy to do that. No, I don't mind when that was bullshit. And speaking of bullshit, I am going to be using a number of American English expressions. And I apologize for those of you who are not uh, native American English speakers, if it doesn't translate well, I'm sorry about that. So I care more what I think of me than what other people do. And that has really led to my integrity because now I care more about being an honest woman of integrity than I do that you will like me. And that has enabled me to have boundaries. And the second thing, which I don't think I really realized until a couple of years later, is that being connected to caring others when beginning to set boundaries is paramount. And this is because when we're we are protected when we're connected. So I did the ACA 12 steps in a small group. There were four of us. And these women sometimes literally held my hand and other times metaphorically held my hand while I was setting boundaries. And I'm going to talk more about why this is so important later in the presentation. But one of the things I've learned in recovery, and if you don't know about this tool of bookending, it's amazing. I'll share more about it um, later in the presentation, but essentially bookending is where you check in with somebody before you do something difficult, you do the difficult thing, and then you check in with them after. So I'll say more about that, but these are my two most important things for me in terms of being able to establish, maintain, um, and uphold my boundaries, and also to deal with the pushback that people who have been around you when you haven't had boundaries, you know, it's going to happen. People are going to push back. All right. Now, before we get started, I am going to give you two minutes. And Brad has told me he's going to be able to put a timer up there. And whether you have downloaded the worksheets or not, you can just write one to five on a piece of paper. I want you to name five things that you have gotten better at over time. So briefly, um, my five things are calligraphy, managing my time, setting boundaries, my finances, and axe throwing. So Brad, if you would put the timer up, that would be great. Oh, sorry, I wasn't prepared. I need like one minute. I'm okay. 
Well, then why don't you put it up for a minute and people can get started right now. Can everybody see Brad's screen with the timer? Oh, actually they can't. <laughs> Liz, can you see it? Yes, I can. Okay, great. So this can be anything in your entire life that you've gotten better at over time. It doesn't have to do anything to do with ACA or boundaries but it can. I see that somebody raised their hands and I, unless that's a tech question, I'm not gonna be fielding questions until the end. I'm encouraging people to write them down. All right, so time is up on that and that's for you. It's not for anybody else, but I am going to move on. And I wanna say that for me personally, I needed to have boundaries enforced on me from the outside before I could learn to develop my own. So one of the benefits of being in 12-step recovery is that there are boundaries built right in. So for example, the concept of one day at a time is a boundary. The idea is that you have a boundary of one day that you're living in. You're not living in the wreckage of the future and you're not living in the wreckage of the past. You're living in today. There are a bunch of common meeting practices that are also boundaries. The no crosstalk rule is a really important one. We don't interrupt people. We don't um, disagree with people. We don't comment on what people share. We learn to zip it. Timed shares. For me, when I started in ACA, we didn't time our shares. But then when I started in Overeaters Anonymous, they all the meetings had timed shares. So it was just the way that it was. And in my meetings, when we started having timeshares, it really relaxed the entire group because we would occasionally have people who would go on and on and on and on for like 25 minutes. And sometimes they'd start sharing at five minutes before the meeting was supposed to end and all this anxiety would happen. So it teaches us to be more succinct in what we're saying and to respect the boundaries of the group. When meetings begin and end on time, that's a boundary. The idea of rotation of service is a boundary. The idea is that you're not in charge and that all of us, nobody's more important than anybody else. And then the notion what's heard in the meeting stays in the meeting is also a boundary. And then there are some notions from the ACA solution that are also about boundaries that are imposed or at least suggested from the outside. So we're told to keep the focus on ourselves in the here and now. So we're not focusing on other people and we're not focusing on their 
or then. We're focusing on ourselves here and now. And we reparent ourselves. I'm not looking to you to reparent me. I'm not looking to my parents to reparent me. I'm looking to me to reparent me. And we restructure our sick thinking one day at a time. I'm not looking to anybody else. I'm not looking to a therapist or my fellows or my sponsor to restructure my sick thinking. And oops. Oh, the serenity prayer is also all about boundaries. I'm going to explain that in more detail later, but I added that later, as you can see. And then the traditions are absolutely about boundaries. They teach us how to act in the group and also toward other groups. So tradition four is all about group autonomy. Our business is inside this group, not out there. We have one primary purpose, not 15 primary purposes. We have one. We don't make outside endorsements. So we have no opinions on outside issues. Number seven, we're self-supporting through our own contributions. We don't take money from outside people. We are forever non-professional. That's a boundary we've drawn. We're not bringing in professionals. I already mentioned no opinion on outside issues. And then anonymity is huge in terms of boundaries. I could do an entire presentation on why anonymity is about boundaries. But for many of us, these are the first times that we've really had boundaries enforced on us. And I personally needed that before I could develop them on my own. So I mentioned um, that I'm going to talk about some frameworks for changing human behavior. And I'm going to start with the ACA 12 steps. And step one is I am powerless over the effects of alcoholism and family dysfunction. Well, what are the main effects? Well, the big red book tells me that the main effects of growing up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional family are fear and distorted thinking. So my thinking is the largest part of my problem. Problem is my thinking is what drives my life, right? So I've got some frameworks to help me with my thinking. One of those frameworks is recovery. And another is I love quotes. And so I have a bunch of quotes I'm going to share with you. Um, and what this means for me is I need to examine my thinking every step of the way. I was told when I came into recovery, I need three things, H-O-W, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. So I'm going to talk about open-mindedness here. The idea is there's something I don't know and or haven't tried that is going to help me and that the process of recovery actually works. So I need to examine my thinking every step of the way, especially when it comes to recovery. And what I like to do, I learned, is to begin with the end in mind. Where am I headed? And where I'm headed is step 12, which tells us having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others who still suffer and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So I'm going to break this step down here. All right. So it has several parts to it. It says, having had a spiritual awakening. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means to me. It means the ability to be, see, think, do, have, and believe that which I could not be, see, think, do, have, and believe 
before recovery. In other words, I am changed. It doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with God. It can, but it doesn't necessarily. So the spiritual awakening is I am different than I was at the beginning of the 12 steps. The other, another part of this says we practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, what are these principles? Well, these are some of the principles that are tied to the steps in the traditions, honesty, hope, faith, courage. And we practice them in all our affairs, not some of our affairs, in all our affairs. And remember, it's we practice them. So we try, we strive to live up to these principles. We're not going to all the time, but that's what we're hoping to do. And then the last part is we try to carry this message to those who still suffer. Well, what is this message? Well, the message is I'm changed. And guess what? You can too. That's why we're carrying it because I'm changed and you can too. And I was taught by my first sponsor and my other program, you don't just carry the message. You are the message by the way I live my life because I practice these principles in all my affairs. I am the message. And so the other part of that message is I'm trying to live my life by these spiritual principles in spiritual alignment. So we want others to know I've changed, you can change too, and you can also live by these principles. So we're beginning with the end in mind. This is where we're headed. And I'm going to come back to this towards the end, this notion of practicing these principles and all our affairs and living in spiritual alignment. So this 12th step is why I am here today. This is 12th step work for me. So listen up, people. You too can change. You're not terminally unique. You're not beyond hope. No one is. It is never too late to change. I don't care how old you are. It is never too late to change. And everyone can be healed, including you. All right. So back to the distorted thinking. Some of the frameworks that... I use come in the form of quotes. So what's going to happen for you this weekend at this convention is you're going to learn some things about yourself. Some of them you're not really going to like. And I encourage you when that happens to think of them as info, not ammo. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you learn something new about yourself, you're going to take it in as information to learn and grow from, not as ammunition to beat yourself up. Most of us in ACA are super good at beating ourselves up, right? But beating yourself up will not result in changed behavior. Because if it would, if it did, you would be changed by now, right? It only results in you being battered and bruised. So most of us are constantly on the lookout. Where can I beat myself up? Where can I beat myself up? And it may, may not be conscious. In fact, it likely is not. But from now on, when something comes up that feels critical or painful, I encourage you to think of it as info, not ammo. And then Another saying that is really helpful to me is go as far as you can see. When you get there, you can see further. 
So you may think, oh my God, my situation is hopeless. I had such a fucked up family. I'm never going to be able to recover or I have no idea how I'm going to get to be the kind of person who has boundaries. Well, go as far as you can see. When you get there, you can see further. Or as Martin Luther King Jr. said, you don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. Action is required, not knowledge. So it says go as far as you can see. And another expression is do the next right thing. It's not think the next right thing. It's do the next right thing. So go as far as you can see. And then when you get there, you can see further. All right. Another one is anything worth doing is worth doing badly at first. So when you start to set boundaries, you're not going to be good at it. The very first or the first memory that I have of setting boundaries and recovery, I want to set it. I don't even remember what it was, but I want to set a boundary and I was like, wham. Oh, that was a little too harsh. Now I didn't know that because I didn't know it until it happened. And as soon as it happened, I realized, Ooh, that was too harsh. I didn't mean for it to be that harsh. I didn't know it was going to be too harsh until I did it. And I felt the harshness. So I had to be willing to do it badly at first. Think about walking, right? When you learn to walk as a baby, you have to be willing to do it badly at first or you're never going to get, you have to be willing to fall and tuddle. And if you think about it, the reason you can't walk when you're a baby is because you don't have the muscles in your legs to hold you up. Well, guess how you get the muscles by falling and getting back up. So anything worth doing is worth doing badly at first. Another one is you don't get better at something by not doing it. So I happen to be an entrepreneur and I was first told this in the world of entrepreneurship. And I thought, damn, that's pretty obvious. And I also thought, oh, this is really helpful in the world of recovery first. Another way of saying this is practice makes progress, right? So you don't get better at something by not doing it. If you have tried to set boundaries in the past and people didn't respond the way you wanted them to and you gave up, well, guess what? You're not getting any better at setting boundaries by not doing it. So you have to actually do things. And then this really applies to anything about human behavior change. And it's this, it's a slow process. Quitting won't speed it up, right? So if you start working on setting your boundaries and it's not going fast enough for you and you stop, it's really not going to speed up the process for you. So these all sound like they're rather obvious, but what I want you to do now is take a minute for each one of these. So Brad, three different times, I'm going to have you put um, a minute counter down. So the first one is I want you, if you have worksheet two, great. You can write this on there. If not blank paper will do. What is something you've been afraid to do badly? So take a minute to write on that.
10 more seconds. All right, we'll need another minute for this, Brad. What is something you've not been doing, but you want to get better at? Ten more seconds. All right. And remember that I am trying to help you to think differently about yourself, about the world, and what's possible. So this one is, it's a slow process. Quitting won't speed it up. So what have you given up on because it's too slow or it just wasn't happening fast enough for you? One minute. All right, about eight seconds left. Okay. So somebody shared this with me when I first got in recovery and I absolutely loved it. And I think it's because we compare our insides to other people's outsides. But just know if you keep coming back, the trajectory is eventually in the my life is better direction. So I mentioned this way of thinking, it's a slow process, but quitting won't speed it up. And I want to give you a framework for thinking about human behavior change. And that is the results of our behavior change are much more likely to happen in an exponential fashion rather than a linear fashion. So we think I'm going to do this and it's going to go this particular way. And so what I want to do is give you an illustration here. And again, this is a metaphor. I'm not giving, I'm, it's going to do, has to do with money. I'm not giving anybody any money, but it has to do with the difference between linear growth and exponential growth. And in this particular case, the exponential growth is going to be doubling. So in this example, let's say that I said I was going to give you one penny every single day for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, you would have 30 cents. Now, in my other model, where I'm saying we're going to make this be an exponential growth model, 
If I gave you a penny the first day and then I doubled it the next day and I doubled it the next day and I doubled it the next day, by the end of 15 days, you have, would have $163.84 on that day alone. So by the time you got to day six in this exponential growth model, you would be farther than you would have gotten in the linear growth model. And human behavior change tends to have an impact that is much more like exponential growth than linear growth. But look what happens if you keep going and you double it every 30 days. By day 30, you have $5 million on that day alone. But in all 30 days, it totals up to over $10 million. Can you imagine if you stopped on day five or day 10 or day 15 or even day 24? You wouldn't realize anywhere near the kind of impact that you might have. And again, this is a metaphor. It doesn't mean that human growth works exactly like this, but the idea is you're going to see the payoffs ex exponentially grow in your life. And that is exactly what has happened for me when it comes to boundaries. And this is my number one rule when teaching people about boundaries. And it is this. Actually, it's my top five rules. Keep the focus on yourself. 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 Your boundaries are about you and they are for you. So keep that in mind when you're working on setting boundaries. Now, we're going to go into talking about those boundaries. And I want to start by saying that one of the most tremendous gifts of my recovery, probably the most tremendous gift of my recovery is understanding my part in things. What was I doing to create the chaos and or exacerbate the chaos or draw chaos towards me before recovery? And what's the reason it's such a great gift is because I can stop doing that shit. And another incredible gift of recovery is that I'm able to look back at my past before recovery and say, here's what I was doing, here's what I was thinking, and here's what my motives were with crystal clarity. Now, back then, I was absolutely blind to it. This is the denial that the Big Red Book talks about. The Big Red Book says denial is the glue that holds dysfunctional families together. And I have found this to be so true. I've been in ACA for, I just celebrated my six-year anniversary last week or the week before. And there's still some denial that, I mean, the bulk of it, I believe, I hope, has been lifted. I, when I came in, I thought I had seven traits. I have 13 of them. That's how much denial I was in. But one of the things I can see about myself before recovery was it was almost like I was walking around as a bunch of fragmented pieces that were just sort of floating in space and they had all these spaces between them. And because there was spaces, other people's shit could leak into them. And because there were spaces and because I didn't have boundaries. So what happened over time is that recovery helped me integrate those pieces into a coherent whole. In addition to integrating those pieces together into a coherent whole, I got rid of the pieces that were not me. And I discovered my real shape. For me personally, I'm a turquoise oval. And so I'm no longer fragmented. I am whole. 
Now I can be rocked by things that happen to me now. Of course I can. And things of course still happen to me, but I cannot be shattered by them the way that I used to because I am no longer fragmented. There are a variety of reasons why I believe I was fragmented. And many of them have to do with the idea that I used masks or fake identities or what some people call facades to protect myself instead of using boundaries. So I morphed myself into ways that I wasn't naturally. And because I was being fake, I was defensive all the time because God forbid people see who the real Barb was. I also grew up this notion that I shouldn't be flawed. And if I was going to be flawed, I damn well better not show it to other people. And so that made me even more defensive. So when I say I put up these masks or I had these fake identities or these facades, what do I mean by that? So um, again, I morphed myself to fit what I thought others wanted of me. So one of my fake identities was I can afford this. So I can tell you right now, every financial problem I have ever had in my life, and I've had a lot of them, I declared bankruptcy in 1999 when my student loans came due. Now I turned that around and was able to buy a home nine years later, well before recovery, but all of my financial problems have to do with codependence, every one of them, all right? Another fake identity I had, I have my shit together. So in other words, I don't have flaws. I have all the answers and you should all be listening to me. Another one is I have all the time in the world for you. I gave my time away to other people all the time. Another one is I don't need help. I am completely self-sufficient. And I will tell you that learning how to reach out for help, which is my number two tool of recovery, my number one is pausing. When I learned to reach out for, to help for other people, I was in my the step group I mentioned earlier. And one of the women in the group said one day when we were meeting, she said, you know, I was really upset and I was going to reach out to one of you the other day. And I talked myself out of it. And we realized, oh my God, we're all talking ourselves out of reaching out for help. So we made a pact. We're going to stop talking ourselves out of calling someone when we want help and support. And then none of us did it. So even though we talked about it, we made a pact about it. We just couldn't do it. I mean, eventually we learned how to do it. That's how hard reaching out for help is for ACAs. And then another fake identity that I had or mask that I wore was, I like what you like, really, okay? So this ended up in me being pulled and morphed in all these different directions. So I was fragmented. And what recovery has done for me, what having healthy boundaries has done, is helped me to establish my real authentic identity. And I mentioned before, my shape is a turquoise oval. All right. So promise number one in, in ACA says we will discover our real identities by loving and accepting ourselves. And one of the ways we can grow to love and accept ourselves is to start practicing these principles in all our affairs, living up to our own standards, all right? 
And one thing that has become notable to me, and I think it's really because of doing this presentation and the way that I chose to depict it, is that note, my real identity still contains some aspects of my masks or fake identities. So I actually really do want people to like me. I really do want to be helpful. I really do want to be agreeable, but I don't want to morph myself out of proportion when I am doing those things. I want to hold on to the real part of Barb. And so I've learned to use boundaries instead of these masks or fake identities. And so I'm going to talk more and more about what that looks like. But before we do that, I want you, even if you don't have worksheet three, you can use a blank piece of paper. Um, I, but if you do, you can go ahead and use it. And I want, um, Brad, if you could give three minutes on the clock for this. So you can use the shapes that I used and you can write in them or you can draw in them or you can draw something entirely different. Think of, I would say at least three fake identities or masks or facades that you've worn to protect yourself instead of using healthy boundaries. So if you'd put three minutes on the clock, great. Thanks, Brad. Got about another minute left. And if there's anybody who's just joined us, what we're doing here is um, you can use blank paper if you don't have the worksheets. And what we're doing is either writing or drawing out some fake identities or masks or facades that we have used to protect ourselves.
All right, we're going to move on from that. And again, this is all for you. Nobody else has to see any of this work that you do. All right, now I'm going to move into some principles about boundaries. I know that um, for me and many people that I meet that don't really have healthy boundaries, when they start thinking about them, they think that they're like walls. And really, they're more like fences. And I'm going to use this metaphor of fence throughout the rest of this presentation. So they're more like fences in that they're a little bit more flexible. They have a gate in them and they also can change over time under different circumstances and with different people. They can even change within the same day. It's really about what makes you comfortable in your own skin, in your own body. So they're not like walls. We want them to be more like fences. So carrying this metaphor of fences through Having a healthy boundary is like having a fence with a gate in it. So I've done my best here to depict a fence with a gate in it. And it opens from the inside only. That means you decide who or what gets inside your boundary. It's not for other people to decide. You are the gatekeeper of your other boundary. Other people are not in charge of your boundaries. And boundaries without consequences aren't actually boundaries. They're hopes and wishes. I heard this one time, they don't work like an invisible dog fence where you just think you have a boundary and then all of a sudden people know and, and they don't cross it. That is not how it works. You're in charge of enforcing your boundaries with some kind of consequence. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So you need to honor your boundaries, even if other people don't. Your boundaries are yours. They're your property and they don't belong to other people. If others don't respect your boundaries, you have to be willing to walk away. And walk away can mean a variety of things. It can mean putting up your hand, saying I'm not gonna do that or some other kind of consequence. So you're in charge of your boundaries. I think the most common misconception that I hear, especially from newcomers, is they think that boundaries are for other people. And they think that they're about controlling other people. And they're not. They're about you. And what you want to do with your life and how you want to live your life and setting up your life in such a way that you can do that. And I'm going to talk more and more about how precisely we do that. So I think that for me personally, one of the reasons that setting boundaries in the beginning was so difficult and so painful was I had no models for healthy separation. It was either enmeshment or abandonment, nothing in between, right? So for me, setting healthy boundaries felt like abandonment. And it's not, it's about healthy separation, differentiating yourself first from your family of origin, but also from all of those around you. So I've grown to care more what I think about me because I actually know what I think about me and I know what I like and I don't like because I've been working on developing healthy boundaries over time. Now, I mentioned at the very beginning, one of the most important things I learned about setting healthy boundaries was being connected to safe and caring, healthy other people. 
was paramount to me setting healthy boundaries. And so I talked about this possibility of bookending, and this is really important to remind us that setting healthy boundaries is not about abandonment. So the notion of bookending is basically where you want to do something difficult and you check in with somebody before and after you do it. And it could be as basic as you send somebody a text, I'm going to do this thing, you do the thing, and then you send them a text and you say, I did it. Or it could be a lot more complex when it comes to setting boundaries, especially if you have a particularly difficult one and or it's the first boundary that you're setting. Maybe you have a step group that you work in. Maybe you have a sponsor, a fellow traveler, or a therapist that you're working with. You want to talk through where it is you want to set the boundary, who you want to set it with, maybe some of the language that you're going to use. And the day that you want to set the boundary, you might call that person or meet with them in person. And they, re they affirm you, they nurture you, they help you through this process. And the other thing they do is they help you process your difficult emotions about the boundary. Then you go and you set the boundary with the other person. And then you come back to your safe, caring other person. And again, you process your difficult emotions with that person. You do not process your emotions with the object of your boundaries. You're not launching all of those emotions at the person you're setting boundaries with because you've processed before and you've processed after. The other thing this does is while you are there setting the boundary, I call it when you're in the lion's den, you know, at least on a subconscious and psychic level, I am not alone. There is this caring other person out there who knows where I am. They know what I'm doing and they know what I'm going through. I am not abandoned. So I'm connected. Remember, we are protected when we're connected. That is another reason why recovery works so well, because this is a group process. We do not do this alone. Okay. I cannot see the title of this slide because this stuff is over the top. Okay, so uh, we don't put fences around property we don't value. So if you had an abandoned piece of property like this, you probably wouldn't care to put a fence around it because you wouldn't really care too much if people were breaking in or defacing it. But if you were to put a whole bunch of work into refurbishing your property and taking care of your property. And in this case, I want you to think of yourself as your property. So if you go about the process of reparenting yourself with gentleness, humor, love, and respect, and you start taking better and better and better care of yourself, you're much more likely to want to put a boundary around that property because you care about it. And what I experienced when I set boundaries is that this was an iterative process. So I set a boundary and I feel better about myself and I feel better about myself so I can set a boundary. And because I set a boundary, I feel better about myself. So the more you set boundaries, the better you're going to feel about yourself, the more you're secure, you're going to feel about yourself. And this, in my opinion, is because we've stopped abandoning ourselves when we start setting boundaries. I think, you know, we know that one of the things we fear the most as adult children is being abandoned. 
And the ironic thing is what we do is we abandon ourselves. And what I have found in my recovery anyway, is that when I stop abandoning myself, I stop being afraid of abandonment. And that makes total sense because I'm no longer abandoned. And then when I add my higher power to that, I've got me that I can count on and I've got my higher power, then I'm not abandoned. I don't need you. I'm not grasping at you to give me the thing that you probably can't give me anyway, because I'm giving it to myself. So when I stop abandoning myself, I stop being afraid of abandonment. And setting healthy boundaries is one of the ways in which we stop abandoning ourselves. And I think it's important to use the language of ACA when we're talking about things like this. So I think it's important to say, I abandoned myself instead of saying I self-sabotaged, I didn't show up for myself, I don't follow through. And the reason I think that's important is because when I say, oh, I didn't show up or I self-sabotage or I didn't follow through, that's some like out there problem. I don't know why I have that problem. I don't know how I'm going to fix it. But when I use the language of ACA to talk about my behavior, I'm reminded, oh, that's right. I self-abandon because I'm an adult child. This is one of the effects of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And the great news about remembering, oh, this is because I'm an adult child, is there's a solution. There is a solution to being an adult child. And that is to become your own loving parent. And one of the ways in which we reparent ourselves is by setting healthy boundaries. So what I want you to do now is to take Uh, let's see, we'll take one minute, please, Brad. And I want you to list three reasons why you deserve to have a fence around your property. And if you can't come up with your own three reasons, I want you to think of reasons that people in your recovery program would tell you that you deserve to put a fence around your property. Your property is value, valuable for at least these three reasons. So go ahead and with the timer, Brad, thanks. And again, if you don't have the worksheets printed out, plain piece of paper is fine. about 10 more seconds. All right, now we're gonna move on. So one of the things that boundaries do for us is they differentiate between what is yours and what is not yours. 
So many of us grew up in enmeshed families. So there wasn't a difference between us and other people. And so I encourage you to think about what's inside of this boundary with the gate in the fence is your property. So it's your property, not other people's, not their property. So your feelings, your attitudes, your behaviors, and your choices, those are yours. So I didn't know this. Like I thought I had to feel other people's feelings. I actually did have to feel other people's feelings, but I didn't know that I had a choice about that. And I had the ability to stop feeling other people's feelings and to differentiate myself. I thought that I had to make the same choices as my family, et cetera. But I've learned that this is my property and I get to decide what I want. The process of recovery is learning discernment and the ability to make choices. I'm no longer compelled. I now have choices. So what's inside the boundary is your property, not other people's property. And what's outside the boundary is not yours. It's other people's. So other people's feelings are outside yours, your property. They're not yours. Their attitudes, their beliefs, and their choices. So I'm going to give you some examples. All right. So other people's happiness or misery is not your property. You cannot make someone be happy. Other people's abusive and dysfunctional behaviors, you don't, you can't control them. You can't stop them from being abusive and dysfunctional. You can go away from them and avoid them, but you can't turn them from a dysfunctional person into a functional person. That's not your property. Their inability to be loving, caring, and nurturing. You can't turn someone into a loving, caring, nurturing person. You can't, it's not your property. Other people's consequences. Many of us, you know, are codependent and we're enablers. And so what we do is we take other people's negative consequences for them. I did it all the time. You know, I was shelling out money for people. I was rescuing people. I was saving people. I was cleaning up their messes. Other people's consequences are their property, not yours. Other people's guilt is not yours. You don't need to take on other people's guilt and you don't need to be responsible for it. Other people's problems. I was constantly in other people's business and trying to fix their problems, whether they wanted me to or not. Other people's addiction and dysfunction. You cannot get somebody else clean and sober. It's not possible for you to do that. That's not your property. Other people's self-defeating behavior, their confusion, denial, or lack of clarity, their hopes and dreams are all their property, not yours. So what's inside the boundary is your responsibility. And what's outside the boundary is not your responsibility. It is none of your business. And that is a phrase I have had to tell myself so many times, not my business, not my business, not my business. So what I want to do here, oh, wait, I forgot. This is where I'm going to connect boundaries and the serenity prayer. All right. So the serenity prayers says that I accept the things I cannot change. So that's basically everything outside of the boundary, other people's property, it's not mine, their feelings, attitudes, beliefs, and choices, people, places, and things, 
And I have the courage to change the things I can, the things inside the boundary. I can change my feelings. I don't have to morph myself to feel their feelings. I used to feel like I didn't, I had to lower my energy to the energy of the people around me. I am mostly a joyous person and have always been an optimist. But if I was around, especially somebody I was dating and they were miserable, I felt like I had to be miserable. Well, guess what? You don't have to be. You need the courage to change the things you can. And then that line, that boundary, that's the wisdom to know the difference. All right, so I'm gonna give you a moment here. And if you have the worksheet, great. If you don't, draw a circle. And I want you to think about what is your property that you have been making other people responsible for. And I want you to write three things inside the circle that's your property you've been making other people responsible for. So for example, for me, I used to make others responsible for my feelings. I used to make them responsible for reading my mind. And I used to make them responsible for making me feel valued. So let's give people a minute for that, please, Brad. Sorry, I didn't give you a warning. All right. So one of the things that has been really helpful to me in terms of not making other people responsible for me or things that are mine is this expression right here. Let go of my expectations of others and meet my own needs. I think I heard it on a recovery podcast and I was like, what? And I have used this over and over and over again. It has become so important to me that what I do, I keep a nightly journal where I do my nightly inventory. And I do my, I've been keeping a gratitude list for 20 years, by the way, talk about changing your life. So in my journal, I will flip ahead a few pages and I write, let go of my expectations of others and meet my own needs so that when I get to that page, it's very obvious. And so what I do is I think, okay, is there a place or a time today where I had some expectations of others instead of meeting my own needs? And it's become fewer and farther between because I'm getting so much more used to meeting my own needs. So an example might be, I expected somebody to praise me for something, but guess what? I didn't tell them. So I either let go of that expectation after the fact, or I praise myself. All right. So now the other part of this is what is other people's property that you have been taking responsibility for? 
So I want you to list three things that other people that are other people's property you've been taking responsibility for. So some examples for me were I used to take responsibility for other people's opinion of me. I thought I could force them to have a specific opinion of me. I used to take responsibility for other people's finances by saving and rescuing them. And I used to take responsibility for other people following through. So if they didn't follow through, I would follow through for them. So if you could give people a minute for that, Brad, that would be great. Okay, we're going to move on to another principle of boundaries, and that is healthy boundaries allow us to let the good in and keep the bad out. And in this case, when I say good, I mean that which nurtures us. And when I say bad, I mean that which harms us. And I want to make a distinction between harms and hurts here, okay? So when I go to the dentist and I get my tooth drilled, it hurts, but it doesn't harm me, right? When I get a needle, when I use a needle to take a splinter out of my finger, it hurts me, but it doesn't harm me. In fact, both of those things heal me. So there's a difference between harming and hurting. So people might be hurt when you set boundaries with them, but they're not going to be harmed by them. So I want you to keep that in mind. So what does this mean? So this is, again, these are metaphors. I'm doing the best I can here to visually depict this. So we want to keep, we want to let the good in. So many people that don't have healthy boundaries, don't take compliments. They won't accept help. They won't accept support. They won't accept praise. They don't allow themselves to do things that bring them joy. And when I mentioned earlier, probably my greatest gift of recovery is understanding my part in things. This is a perfect example. I wasn't letting in help, support, praise, or compliments. I felt like I had to do everything myself. So when we have healthy boundaries, we allow ourselves to take in the good. And we also allow ourselves to keep out the bad. So it could be things like toxic environments, yellows, yellers, screamers, et cetera. So this is a way that we become our own loving parent. And what's supportive and helpful and nurturing for me isn't necessarily what's supportive and helpful and nurturing for you. And what's harmful to me isn't necessarily harmful to you. 
So I want to figure out how to set up my life. So okay, things keep coming and the not okay things go away. So what I'd like you to do now is write inside the circle. So what are some good things that nurture you that you have not been letting in? You can either draw them or you can write the word. So let's put a minute on the clock for that, please, Brad. All right, now I want you to think about what are bad things that harm you that you have not been keeping out. You can either write the words out or draw them, but I want you to put them outside of the circle. One minute, please. on to some more principles of boundaries. And we're going to talk here about boundaries of self-containment. And I will tell you, I heard a speaker at a 12-step recovery meeting share his story. And he said, I now have boundaries of self-containment and boundaries of self-protection. And I was like, mind blown. He didn't go into any detail at all about what either of those things meant. But I was like, wait, what? And so I have pondered over time, what do boundaries of self-containment mean and boundaries of self-protection? So what I'm sharing with you here is what I've come up with. I've basically made all this stuff up and I've done my best here to depict what I think a boundary of self-containment would mean. So I showed, I showed the thicker boundary on the inside of the circle. So these are examples of my own boundaries of self-containment. So what that means are these are things I need to contain or hold on to, or reduce or stop doing. 
So I think most people with healthy, unhealthy boundaries really think other people are the problem. And the reality is that maybe so, there may be other people who are problematic, but the main problem is you. And, or at least my main problem was me. So my guess is some of you are gonna be similar to me. And this is a huge part of how I stopped the fucking chaos, all right? So boundaries of self-containment. I used to give personal and private information to people that I didn't even really know and that weren't necessarily trustworthy. So that put me in harm's way. I used to give unsolicited advice all the time. Meanwhile, I was over hundred pounds overweight. I had years of debt problems, years of substance abuse, a 19 year long codependent relationship with my boss, uh, a string of dysfunctional romantic relationships. I was estranged from my father. I mean, come on. Like I'm giving unsolicited advice to people about how to run their lives. And I can't even run my own damn life or one area of my life, right? Uh, my inner critic, I just used to let it run rampant. And now I need to, I can, as soon as I hear it, I need to contain that. I used to complain a lot. What I've learned is that me complaining is basically saying, I know better than God. I used to over explain everything. And when I look back now, I can say, oh, I was over explaining because I was pretty much trying to convince them why I was right. I used to make excuses for everything. I used to be very critical. Uh, TMI, too much information. For those of you who are non-Native American English speakers, this has become an expression, TMI, too much information. Well before this was an expression, I was told you give way too much information to people. I didn't contain. I felt like I had to tell everybody every single thought. I once had a boss that said to me, Barb, did your mom tell you that you had to verbalize every single thought you ever had in your head? Uh, my negative self-talk, just like the inner critic, as soon as I know that it's going on, I need to contain that. Um, my thoughts. So I used to ruminate a lot. I didn't even realize I did that until I got in recovery. And I would say that of all the things that I hand over to my higher power, my thoughts has been the most common. And that was especially true in the beginning. And actually, I didn't just hand things over to my higher power. I shoved them. I was like, no, 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 please, please take this thinking away from me because I would be like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And then he's going to do that. And then she's going to say that. And, that. and then I'd get all mad about like the outcome of my fake conversation that I had in my head. And I realized as soon as I know that's going on, I have the ability to contain that, right? Um, rescuing and fixing. I got to hold on to that impulse to relax, excuse me, rescue and fix other people. And a quick trust. I didn't know how else to say that, but I used to trust people who were untrustworthy immediately. Basically, if you were born, I was going to trust you. You didn't have to do anything. And gossip is another one. If you had ever told me that one of my worst defects of character would be gossip, I wouldn't have believed you. But here's what happened. I grew up in a family that engaged in indirect communication. And gossip is a form of indirect communication. So of course I gossiped, right? So I need to contain that. So we let go of self-harming behaviors. And one of the things that I've realized over time is that these boundaries of self-containment are also boundaries of self-protection. I'm gonna say a little bit more about that in a moment. And I'm gonna talk now about boundaries of self-protection. But before I do that, I got another quote for you. So this is a Chinese proverb that I heard 
I don't know, 25 years ago. And I thought I knew what it meant. No, I didn't. Not until I got into recovery. So here's the proverb. It's easier to put slippers on your feet than to carpet the world. So let's think about this metaphor. The world has sharp and jagged edges. So maybe you want it to be soft. So you want to carpet the whole world. Well, the reality is it would take a really long time and enormous amount of labor and energy to put a carpet over the entire world. It would be so much easier if you just put slippers on your feet, right? Well, in my family, we were in the carpet lane business. We were going to carpet the entire world rather than put slippers on our feet, right? So we wanted the world to be the way we wanted it to be. And we were going to force it to be that way, no matter what we had to do. And I think if my family had learned that slippers even existed, then they would have made their own slippers from scratch, you know, because you have to work really hard. And they would have made everybody have to wear the exact same slippers as they're wearing because that's how it works. Instead of saying, hey, you know, you like hard sole slippers. You like ones that are like booties. You like ones that slip on. You like ones that, you know, tie at the top, right? So the idea is you can't control the world. You can put slippers on your feet, right? What are the slippers you need to put on your feet? So boundaries of self-protection are an example of that. So these, again, are examples of my boundaries of self-protection. And again, I've done the best I can to visually depict this by making the darker, thicker circle on the outside to be like, I need to protect myself from these things. So what are some things I need to protect myself from? I got to stay away from mean people. Now, I can't change them from being a mean person, but I don't need to spend a lot of time with them. I can't hang out with substance abusers, untrustworthy people. I used to trust untrustworthy people. And then I would blame them for being untrustworthy. Meanwhile, they were untrustworthy the whole damn time that I met them. So now I understand either I don't spend a lot of time with them or I see them for what they are. And I, I know that trust is something that is built over time. Personally, I got to stay away from the news. Not good for my mental health. Got to stay away from it. I need to stay away from dysfunctional environments. I don't have unguarded time. What I mean by that is I used to give my time away to other people all the time. And now I decide how I want to spend my time and I put chunks of time on my calendar for how I want to spend it. I do have blocks of time that I can do whatever I want in, but I don't just leave my time available to other people. I don't hang out with unsafe people. I can't deal with yellers and screamers. Oh, and guess what? I grew up in a dysfunctional family and they're still pretty fucking dysfunctional. So I have to minimize the amount of time that I spend with them. Again, I can't turn them into a functional family, but my boundary of self-protection is I got a 90 minute window that I could spend with them. I got to stay away from other people's business. Me getting involved in other people's business was a huge part of my problem. It's not my business. It's not my property. I stay away from abusive people, politics, needy and clingy people. Again, I can't turn them into non-needy, non-clingy people, but I can minimize the amount of time with them. I have to stay away from drugs, alcohol, and sugar. I have to protect myself from those things from toxic situations and negativity in general. 
So what I want you to do now is to think about the boundaries of self-containment. And some of those boundaries of self-containment are going to be things you need to contain to protect yourself. So for example, I mentioned that I gave personal and private information to other people and put myself in harm's way. And some of your boundaries of self-containment are going to contain chaos or dysfunction and protect other people, or at least reduce the chaos going on around you. So Brad, if you would put a minute on the clock, and I'd like you to spend about half of that time writing or drawing something inside the one on the left, which is something you need to contain that protects you, keeps you from harm's way. And then in the one on the right, either write or draw at least three things that you need to contain that either stop spreading chaos or don't harm other people. So if you're somebody who has been watching and not doing any of these exercises, I want you to, I want to remind you that you didn't come here to this workshop and to this convention for entertainment. You came here for recovery. So I really encourage you to participate in the exercises. All right, we're going to move on. Um, and now I want you to think about boundaries of self-protection. What do you need to take care of and protect yourself from getting triggered? from chaos and from addiction to excitement. Now, this doesn't mean you're never gonna be triggered. As Bonnie mentioned in the last workshop, being triggered, it, like not being triggered is not possible and it's not awful. You just wanna minimize it. So I realized that I used to do things that got me triggered all the time. So Brad, if you put a minute on the clock, put outside the circle, either draw or write, what are things you need to protect yourself from getting triggered, from chaos, addiction to excitement, etc.? Okay, and I can see I'm going a little long on the stories. So I know that this is supposed to end at half past the hour, but I can stay until 40 after the hour because I'm told that's when the, the fun break starts. So I do intend to give time for um, questions at the end. So I'm gonna try to minimize my stories. 
All right, so here's another way to think about your property. So these are your property, your time, your energy, your money, and your love are your property. And so where are your property lines? So this metaphor is probably not as good as the rest of them, but I showed that my boundary is tightest around my time here, because as I've said a number of times, I used to give my time away to other people all the time. And I've realized over time that time is my most precious resource because I can generate more love, more money, more energy, can't generate more time. There's 24 hours in a day. And so I think of the size of the other boundaries in relation to how tight I need my boundary to be. So where are your property lines? So I'm just asking you to think about that here. We're not necessarily going to do an exercise about that but I am going to use this again as another metaphor. So are you giving away your love, your compassion, and your forgiveness too much to others and not holding on to any of it for yourself? Are you giving away your money to others to buy their affection or to rescue them or save them because they quote need you? Are you self-supporting through your own contributions and are you allowing others to be self-supporting through their own contributions? Are you giving your time away so that you run ragged and have no time to play and have fun in your life? And have you given away all, oops, oops, oops. Have you given away all of your energy so that you have none left for yourself? And are you trying to restore that energy by drinking coffee, energy drinks, being slothful, numbing with the drug of the plug or other substances? Alternatively, have you been holding on to these properties, these resources too much? All right, so we have worksheet number nine here. And I want you to think about where might you be letting go of too many of these resources. So if you just give one minute for this, Brad, so maybe start with the resource that you know you have the biggest problem with. And in this minute, if you have time to go on to another resource, go ahead, but just pick one for now. Alrighty, we're getting into the home stretch here. So people have asked me many times, how do I know where to set the boundary? And what I've realized is this, I decide how I want to live my life. And then I draw a boundary around that. Another way to figure that out is what makes me feel at peace. If I'm at peace, then I know I have a healthy boundary. If I'm anxious and uncomfortable, I probably need to either set a boundary 
or tighten up a boundary. Now, mind you, if this is a little bit different than the anxiety or discomfort you get when setting boundaries in the beginning, in the beginning, it will be uncomfortable. I'm talking about once you get good at setting boundaries. So an example is I used to leave the ringer on my phone on all the time. And then I would get mad at people for texting me and interrupting me. So I turned the ringer off. Right? I thought that if I heard the buzz of the text message coming through, I'd be able to ignore it if I was busy, but I was wrong. So instead of getting mad and resentful of those people, I set a boundary. I turned the ringer off, right? So what I do is I decide how I want to live my life. So I've listed here some of the principles of recovery. Remember back when I talked about step 12, we're practicing these principles in all our affairs. So I want to live according to these principles. What do I need to do to do that? And I draw the boundary around that. My principles and my values are inside the boundary, right? How do I live my life in such a way that I can live up to these? So I know the boundary goes here because here is what allows me to practice these principles in all my affairs. So I used to be dishonest with people all the time and say that I liked things I didn't like, or I didn't mind doing things I minded doing. And the boundary is now how I need to be honest. Honesty is the bottom line for me. Like I, if I'm dishonest, I'm going to relapse. That's just the way it's going to happen for me. So, and I have integrity when I live up to my values. So we're looking to be in spiritual alignment with our higher power. Remember we said, I said at the beginning, I like to begin with the end in mind. Where am I headed? I'm headed towards step 12. So I can practice these principles in all my affairs. I want to keep my eyes on the horizon. This is where I'm headed, not where I'm at right now. So I want to be able to be honest. I'm trying, I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs. And note that resentment is not in there. So how can you live so that you're not resentful? How can you live so you don't feel like a victim? That is what will tell you where the boundary should be placed. And remember, boundaries Setting a boundary is an action, not a reaction. So we decide how we want to live our life. The way that I think about my life right now is I live my life on purpose. I live my life by compulsion before, and now I choose how I live my life. So how do you set boundaries? Drum roll. You just do it. And then you screw up and you learn from your mistakes. And you try again and again and again and again. You don't get better at something by not doing it. Just like babies' muscles in their legs get stronger when they fall and get up and fall and get up, your boundaries will get stronger when you set them and you mess up and you set them and you mess up because you'll feel that didn't feel right. So when you set boundaries and make mistakes, you get to take responsibility for doing it when you figured it out. If I told you where to put the boundary, you wouldn't be responsible for your own boundary. The process of getting it wrong is how you get it right. Practice makes progress.
So your boundaries are an open invitation for true intimacy and connection because they reflect to others who you truly are in the moment, what you genuinely like and don't like. And it's never your job to convince anyone to understand your boundaries. Choosing to not explain or justify your boundary is a boundary. And when you're honest about others, with others about who you are, what you like and don't like, healthy people will think this person knows what they need and that makes me feel safe. I don't have to guess. I know who I'm getting. So that's the end of my presentation.